You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. I'm Michael Reed Trice, and I serve as the director at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. In a time when we're focusing at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement and starting our year on the art of listening as a focal point, here we are, think of that. In a time where our democracy is struggling and where we're wondering, what are the ways in which we can be in community together, healthy, listening to one another, articulating difference in a way that doesn't create uh, insurmountable divisions? But here we are also in September of 2021 at the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And we also have Rosh Hashanah celebrating the new year around the world. All of this happening amid a rise in hate crimes reported by the FBI and the Southern Poverty Law Center. And those crimes are generally taking place uh, targeted toward African-American communities, Asian-American communities, Sikh communities, and more. And in specific terms, anti-Semitism continues to grow. And we want to talk about all of these themes with you. So I've invited Holly Huffnagel, who serves at the American Jewish Committee's office. She's the U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism, where she spearheads the agency's response to anti-Semitism in the United States and in its efforts to better protect the Jewish community. But we also recognize in this conversation that those protections for any one community must include others, because the vilification of one community, where we scapegoat there, creates the license for scapegoating others. So we're all in this together in very unequal ways, but in ways that can help disarm the kinds of hate speech which has seemed to foment in our communities locally and nationally. Before coming to the AJC, Holly did serve as the policy advisor to the special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism at the U.S. Department of State. And she's also a researcher in the Mandel Center of Advanced Holocaust Studies in at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. I think this is an important conversation if we're going to take seriously how we listen to communities and how we respond to hate in our own community today. So I invite you to take a listen. You know, I'd like to ask you first about what constitutes a hate crime in the United States. The BBC yesterday released an article on that very title, looking at the United States from a British perspective. And it noted that a hate crime is a kind of criminal offense or one motivated, let's say, by bias toward gender identity or ethnic background or race, which we'll talk about later. But the perpetrator seems to select the victim because of who they are or who they're perceived to be. And in some cases, prosecutors we use federal law to charge an individual, let's say, on a hate crime. And they remind us in the article that the first federal hate crimes in the U.S. were identified in 1968, and it's been expanded several times. And then in 2009, as as you and I, I'm sure, both recall, Congress passed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crimes Prevention Act, which expands the federal definition of hate crimes. So however helpful this article is, it's somewhat, you know, rather clinical from an external view, although a helpful one. We can also look at the Southern Poverty Law Center and their catalogs of hate crimes in the U.S. When you're working in this area or a subsidiary of this area every day as a professional, and when you think about this question and how you describe it to others, what constitutes a hate crime or what is a hate crime 
in American society today, in your estimation? Thank you for the question. And the timing of it is very apt as the FBI actually just released its hate crime statistics report for 2020. And so we are seeing in real time, you know, just now what 2020 looked like for hate crimes in the U.S. And I think there's a lot of misconception actually about what constitutes a hate crime. And I think, you know, we know there are rising attitudes of hate. There's there's online hate, but that doesn't necessarily constitute a hate crime. You have to have the crime itself and then plus that addition of proven bias toward that person, toward that group uh, that are under protected characteristics for it to be a hate crime. And, And what's so interesting is even if it's labeled as such, you know, we follow the prosecution and you know the judicial proceedings afterwards. A lot of hate crimes are charged differently, and they might not be taking it as seriously. And that's so important, I think, in the United States context. If we really want hate to be taken seriously and, and you know to the full extent of the law, we really do need to make sure that the people that commit them are properly punished for those actions. Mm-hmm. And that's you know it's an interesting thing about hate because it seems to get. I mean, my sense is it seems to get infested in society. It gets infested or ingested in in communities or in perspectives or ideologies that just kind of go unchecked and then can result in you know, public displays of hate or aggression toward communities that we can think of. For instance, in Charlottesville, I remember the synagogue right across the street. And we had there were members of that community who were exiting out the back or side door at the same time that you saw this kind of white supremacist movement coming up. I mean, it seems like hate crimes, once they get going in a community or around a community, had this feeling of being somewhat unstoppable even. What's your sense of that? I feel like, do we feel helpless around hate crimes or do they feel like we're in a position where we're not able to kind of halt them once they get going? You know, I think if we feel helpless around hate crimes, then the hater wins. But I think you're right that there is a trend, and especially we've seen this online, that, you know, kind of a, we've seen a surge in hate crimes in, in recent years. We really have. And we, we start wondering, well, what's causing this? Or are they speaking to each other? Are there groups forming actually that are promoting some of this, this hatred? And as you mentioned, you know, Charlottesville, and I specifically work on issues of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we have, have seen, actually, anti-Semitic hate crimes rising as we believe that some of these instigators of these crimes feeling emboldened, feeling empowered by different societal factors, different tools they have at their disposal, such as social media, and able to unfortunately contribute to an even dangerous environment for Jews and others. And I would argue actually that anti-Semitism doesn't just affect the Jewish community. It affects, you know, really all Americans because it's a sign of declining democracy and, and declining pluralism and our values as Americans. I want to ask you more about that specific point in terms of, you know, the decline of a sense of communitarian well-being or democracy or of pluralism. I'm I'm mindful of the fact, as as I'm sure you and I are and our listeners are, that here we are at the 20th anniversary of 9-11 or that time, 20 years ago. I'm reminded of the film by Sharat Raju. He directed the film Divided We Fall, Americans in the Aftermath. He traveled around the United States. A family friend had just been murdered in a hate crime. And at that time, we we saw a number of crimes against the Sikh community or, or Muslim Americans, for instance, and those stories may not have made the evening news, but he wanted to capture these. It seems to me, maybe even a more philosophical question, that hate, when it's in, engaged in society in this way, it does what you mentioned. It has a deteriorative effect on democracy. But it's different from, let's say, private bias, isn't it? Like public aggression or even public hate crimes in the last 20 years, have they grown in a specific way? Has social media assisted that in a way that's unique? What do you think about that? 
I do think there's a difference, of course, between private bias and private hate and, and the way that it can manifest itself in the public. And of course, the latter is actually much more dangerous. Of course, we still need to call out the, the private the individuals, you know, mm-hmm. even though they might have freedom of speech in our country. But we need to make sure that they're an outcast. They're a social pariah. If they say something Islamophobic, you know, like what we saw after 9-11, there is that societal pushback saying that's not OK. You know, this is, you know, Muslim Americans are Americans and we need to, you know, they are one of us. And what you said is inappropriate. I think the danger is when it is kind of in a mass scale when that private hate actually gains followers, gains you know attention, gains a following, and gets into the like the public psyche and has that influence in a way that it hasn't before. And yes, social media has been, I would say, the biggest contributing factor to that in the last two decades. And we've seen that specifically again with anti-Semitism, where that used to be on like the fringes of the internet, the dark web. You would see these you know horrific things about Jews, about you know these anti-Semitic terms and, and tropes. And we're seeing that into the mainstream now in ways that we don't actually think users actually know what they're referring to or what they're sharing or spreading. And that's where the danger is when it's in like the public space and they don't really know what's there's an ignorance to it. And I think that happens with other forms of hate as well, of anti-Black racism, anti-Muslim sentiment, you know, homophobia. And that's um, some trends we need to really push back against. I wonder also, you know, given your comments, if in the last 20 years, we've also had public figures alongside social media who have legitimized the kind of, on the one hand, hateful displays publicly toward others. So now I could take my private bias, I could move into a public square, and I can exert my opinion alongside others, targeting a particular class or population on the one hand. And on the other, insofar as I'm doing that, to your point, I may have no idea really the history of these terms like anti-Semitic tropes or terms, for instance, that are just kind of pouring through me and into the community. When we assess that and the kind of corrosive impact it has on democracy, what's your fear or concern about how this deteriorates our sense of communitarian like well-being or what it means to be a citizen together, to have shared values? What do you think? I think that's exactly right, that question, that if we really don't know what we're dealing with and we don't know, for instance, and I'll speak just to anti-Semitism, what it is. And when you asked about hate, actually, when you started speaking, you spoke specifically about hate and anti-Semitism is defined as a hatred or hostility toward Jews. But what's fascinating about anti-Semitism, it's not just hate. It's not just hostility. There is actually a conspiratorial element to anti-Semitism and where Jews are vilified, not just for their inferiority, which is something that's similar to other forms of racism and bigotry, but Jews are are actually vilified for their supposed, like, quote unquote, superiority, for having too much power, too much control, you know, too much privilege, if you will. And and in our current culture, like, that's, you know, something that's a big question about people who are white or privileged, you know, versus those who are, are black or brown or oppressed. And, and the question is, well, where does anti-Semitism fit in with that? Because it's very much an issue. And a lot of the conspiracies we see around anti-Semitism, such as, as QAnon on the, the far right, but also like something like the New World Order, which we see coming out of like the far left, like they're using the same language and images of someone who's Jewish or someone who's in control or or manipulating the economy or politics or basically someone to blame, someone to to scapegoat societal ills. And when that is part of a society that you don't realize like what you're sharing or what you're promoting and you think this is 
normal, you lose confidence in our, our leaders and our government's ability to govern and trust in your own neighbor. I mean, this is, and I think this is kind of where we can kind of, you know, unfold in in a negative way as a democracy. And that's why we actually do talk about fighting anti-Semitism as not a Jewish problem. It's actually a societal problem because of what I, I just shared. Speaking to your terms that you've identified here, vilification, a conspiracy theory or blame in terms of seeking out a, a scapegoat. And last year in December, I spoke with Rabbi Jeffrey Myers, who serves as the chief rabbi and cantor at Tree of Life Congregation in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The listener may remember on October 27th of 2018 that his synagogue was targeted, vilified for an act of violence that left 11 people murdered. And at that time, Rabbi Myers spoke about the experience of being on the receiving end of an ideology that saw his community in a kind of wrapped up in a conspiracy in a privileged space and vilified in ways that were both abstract and exceedingly dangerous. It's led to a perspective, perhaps, on anti-Semitism in which this particular form of hate crime is always poised to exert itself with pretty criminal consequences. What does the listener need to know, I should say, about anti-Semitism today, and in particular, how anti-Jewish tropes, many of which you're working in, you know, you're cataloging these this year from 2020 and the rise of those tropes during this pandemic age, what would benefit us from really understanding what anti-Semitism is and how it's appearing today? Thank you for that question. I think the very first thing the listeners should know is that anti-Semitism is not a thing of the past. I think many of us, you know, think that they look, maybe look at Jews they know in America and, you know, say, oh, there's no persecution you face or you can't be just, you know, discriminated against. And unfortunately, anti-Semitism did not end in the Holocaust. In fact, we refer to anti-Semitism as the longest hatred. It's, it's been around 2000 years, even before the time of Christ. But of course, it was really Christian anti-Judaism where a lot of these terms and tropes Took hold. And unfortunately, like Michael, to your question, we've seen them recycled just in the last year alone, like tropes from the medieval ages, like the blood libel, even the deicide charge. And I'll, I can get into those, what they are. Poisoning the well, for instance, just to go off on a little sidetrack, you know, Jews were blamed in, in the Middle Ages in the, in the 14th century for causing the bubonic plague, for going to drinking wells and poisoning the water. And, you know, it would help the Christian majority in Europe explain why maybe Jews were getting less sick than they were. And actually, it has a lot to do with, you know, Jews' own, you know, practices of keeping kosher and, and cleanliness, but blaming Jews for causing that sickness, causing that disease. And during the pandemic, we saw these same images of this kind of, you know, Jewish meme or figure spreading COVID-19 or creating the virus in order to profit off the vaccine, which is kind of another blaming of, you know, Jewish wealth or greed, or et cetera. And it's just, it's unfortunate that there's so much material, if you will, so much historic material for anti-Semites, but even those who are ignorant actually to pull from and use today to explain society's issues. And so that's something that we have seen in a pretty negative, a negative way. Uh, so the, that's the first thing I would just <laughs> say to the listeners, like, this hasn't gone away. And we've, just in the past few years alone, if I need to give examples, I mean, you mentioned Pittsburgh, which was actually the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. But it wasn't just Pittsburgh, which was done by a far right, you know, white supremacist. Mm -hmm. But we also had instances in, in Jersey City, New Jersey, where a kosher market was kind of under siege by two members of a, of a Black Hebrew Israelite group attacking Jews. 
We had a Poway, California, also by a white supremacist, other attacks as well. And these are all attacks that have led in, in that have been fatal, that have killed, that yeah. have killed Jews. Um, but that goes to my second thing that I want listeners to know is that anti-Semitism doesn't just come from one place, doesn't just come from one single source. I think we look at it and we can think about a swastika like the Nazis or the far right, which is I think the most visible and almost you know, easy to digest, like, as I think as, as, as engaged citizens, like, oh, this is where it comes from. But unfortunately, anti-Semitism also comes from the far left. We see this with conspiracies against Jews. We see this, especially in, in progressive spaces where Jews are actually excluded from them. If they, you know, believe that, that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state, that, or that Jews are a people and therefore have a, a legitimate right to national self-determination. Like this is all part of that conversation. So that's from the far left. And then we see anti-Semitism coming from, you know, religious extremism, which was something we saw just even recently in Boston when a rabbi was attacked by someone, you know, in the name of Islam, like an extremist, but like um, attacking a rabbi in Boston. And we also see it even from segments of other minority communities. And it's such a challenge. Like, I mean, when we look at minorities in our country and what they experience and how we need to uplift them and ensure that they are treated equally and that they have equal access to, to you know, to our rights to these things as Americans. It's a challenge when they also, some of the segments hold their own anti-Semitic, you know, biases against Jews. And how do you call that out without, you know, undermining or lessening their own experience, but you still have to, like, in order to push back, we still have to acknowledge that, you know, they might treat Jews as an outgroup or as a scapegoat, like I said, and with the conspiracy theories. And it's complex. So that would be the second thing is that it's the first was that it still exists and it's very real. The second thing, it comes from different sources, a lot of different sources, which makes it, you know, hard to identify. And and the maybe the third thing I can leave our listeners whether they should know about anti-Semitism, which I've alluded to is that it's a it is a societal issue. It's not just about Jews. It's how we think about the world. It's it's if we blame others for our place in life or where we are, like that's a problem. And how to move past that and, and grow and become stronger as as individuals, as a community, as a country. And so those would be the three things that I would want our listeners to know. I want to take up this issue of it being the third point of a societal issue. But recognizing also it doesn't come from just one source. And to your first point that it hasn't gone away, and you mentioned deicide, which uh, for the listeners, I understand it is the comes from the Christian historical heritage, which is enshrouded in the belief that Jews then and now are responsible for the execution of Jesus of Nazareth. And that how that's then played out theologically, historically for hundreds of years is that it has enabled a kind of license or legitimacy for the treatment of Jews, which has led to pogroms in the Middle Ages, and also has had some impact on even to the, the modern psyche today, to your point. Sometimes we don't know where these cultural or narrative influences are coming from in our history. It may have nothing to do with anything that someone around us has believed previously, but it just gets into the weft and weave of society in terms of how we look at the Jewish people in general. Would you say, is that an accurate depiction of deicide? Is there anything else you'd want to add to that? I think it is an accurate depiction. I actually think that term speaks to the irrational nature of anti-Semitism because here we have a situation where, you know, 
for, were, you know, rooted in, in Christian anti-Judaism, understanding of Christian doctrine, where Jews were treated as inferior for not accepting, you know, Jesus Christ. They were cursed. They were, you know, all these things as a way for almost early church fathers to separate, you know, Christians from Jews. So that kind of spoke, speaks to their inferiority. With the deicide charge, though, that oddly speaks to the, the supposed superiority of Jews. How can someone kill God, like kill Jesus, or and have that kind of power? So you can kind of already early on see some of that, you know, irrationality of, of anti-Semitism. Now, to the Catholic Church's credit, but also the Protestant Church's credit, like this has been disbanded, just you know, disavowed. Like the deicide charge is no longer an official church doctrine. Right. This came out in 1965 with the Second Vatican Council and, and Nostra Tate. Um, because I actually would say that that charge played a role in the Holocaust, mm-hmm. in setting the stage for something like the Holocaust to happen in in you know, Christian Europe. But unfortunately, there are people who still think this, who still will blame Jews for killing Christ. And, and we actually see this term played out, unfortunately, in, in the Middle East today, which is just so interesting, I think, when you think about transnational trends or, or the way that information is shared and spread from, from Europe to the Middle East. We saw this actually with Nazi propaganda, with some of the, the partners in the Arab world that Hitler made but is actually taking some of that Christian anti-Judaism and bringing it into new spaces. And unfortunately, just to give one example, is we see that image of a crucified Jesus in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which you know can have its own set of criticisms and critiques, but to use classic anti-Semitism, like saying, you know, Jews killed Christ, and then having that same exact image, and you see a IDF, an Israeli Defense Force soldier with the Star of David, murdering a Palestinian Jesus, it all of a sudden is that is that Jewish person killing God again. And that's the challenge when we talk about familiarity, when we talk about something that David Nuremberg, who's a historian out of University of Chicago, said that anti-Semitism is almost part of our grammar. We don't necessarily know about it. It's part of the grammar of the West. Like It can come out in these different ways. And without being able to recognize that history, you might look at that political cartoon and say, oh, this is a commentary on what's happening. But it's much more than that. And especially for Jews, they know that meaning. They know that (laughs) that dog whistle, if you will. And it it means something completely different. I think we need to be very cognizant and our eyes open to how that targeted community might feel about some of these old tropes being used again. I want to just pick up a couple of points. The first being, you know, for the listener, they're aware, as you mentioned, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s and on, a number of those, starting with the Catholic Church, but a number of those Christian communities repudiated their historical connection to any doctrine of deicide. And it's led to some outgrowth of significant dialogue with the Jewish community nationally and internationally. I'm thinking of the Lutheran World Federation, for instance, but there's one example after the next. And that's been a really important outgrowth, let's say, of the last 60 to 70 years itself as you're, as you're identifying. I also hear you saying that even though tropes can be used in a way with impunity toward the Jewish people, one can still be an advocate for both Jewish and Palestinian rights, for Israeli and Palestinian rights, and can even be an advocate for each of those communities, while at the same time of being critical of some activities of any government, including the Israeli government, without resorting to historic anti-Judaic tropes. That's the problem I hear you signifying. And of course, this earlier point about where social media is used to elevate and amplify those tropes, it does a disservice. 
But what I also hear you saying is the disservice transcends the Jewish community as it would any community. And that's to your third point earlier, that the societal issue is that there is a corrosion that takes place that impacts all of us when we vilify and amplify that vilification of others because it creates a kind of license, right? Now I can do this. I can do this mm-hmm. on, on social media, my Facebook account, or other things. The news media can pick up on these tropes often unwillingly, unwittingly. And I guess my concern, I'd like to get your, your reflections on this, is that when I locate the scapegoat, in this case, when I vilify a human being or a community, and then with impunity, I do two things, it seems to me. I exert a kind of hate crime status toward them. So I'm locating them and putting them in a dangerous position, putting them in a position of being attacked and maybe even being maimed or killed on the one hand. And on the other, what's happening in an odd way is I'm elevating myself, right? Like I'm, I'm creating a kind of righteousness bubble around me. Like I am somehow receiving some form of a, I don't even a chosen status. Like I'm just morally more righteous than those I'm vilifying. The lower I put them down, whoever they are, the higher I go. And I wonder if, I guess my next question to you in this regard is, what happens or what are your reflections on? There's different kinds of structural violence, let's say, that can take place. If a hate crime becomes enshrouded in structure, in structural injustice, for instance, where unjust structures evoke in their systemic reality an ongoing hate crime. And you mentioned the Holocaust. We've seen examples of that, right? Where a population is ghettoized, either as citizens or physically in their community. Do we run the risk? Is that the ultimate risk or are there other risks to society when we don't get a handle on how hate shows up toward communities? Jewish community, We're looking at also the African-American community, what Asian-Americans have experienced this year. What are your reflections on that? If it's not the ultimate, I I think it is, you know, a huge issue to go from this more insular kind of privatized hate to where it can be, you know, part of our our structures of society. And you you mentioned the the example that I go to setting, you know, the Jewish context, which is the Holocaust, where... But it didn't just happen overnight. And I think that's something that we almost forget about. We just, we place that those, you know, years of the Holocaust, 1939 to 1945, in just this little timeline. And we think it had a bad beginning and that end. And not to realize the years before where there was this decline in democracy, where there was this propaganda, where there was this preparing, this, I don't you know, tilling of the, of the soil, if you will, to ready a society to, to accept something like this. And I would say that, you know, we, there's a lot of studies on the German population who, were more or less, you know, many of them against against Hitler, didn't necessarily have negative things to say about their Jewish neighbors, but were, were more or less bystanders, you know, going along with it. And I think, you know, these were questions that we've even asked in our, our own country in the last several years. Like, you know, are we watching something happen that we need to be more outspoken about? And one thing I use actually as an example when it comes to anti-Semitism is this idea that what might start with Jews, this idea of, of scapegoating someone else or blaming someone else, doesn't ever end with Jews. There's an analogy sometimes of it, of anti-Semitism being called the canary in the coal mine, which, you know, when you get into analogies about anti-Semitism being a virus or the canary in a coal mine, there's always a weakness to those descriptions. But it's this idea that it's, it might be the, one of the first hatreds, the first sign of, of something amiss. And we can look back through history, actually, and see how 
when Jews were targeted, they, they weren't necessarily the, the first. And I, I'll look to our own our own country. We had the issue with Pittsburgh, right, where in Pittsburgh and Poway, Jews were attacked by, you know, white supremacists. But it was that same white supremacist hate. It was actually even the same manifesto that was used to target Mexican-Americans in El Paso or, you know, Muslims in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And you can see that that pattern that it's others that are being affected by this. And there was actually a, a study done in 2020 of terrorist attacks in the United States that, you know, had come from from the far right, and every single one from the 1980s onward believed in a you know Jewish conspiracy. Actually, so I think that these actually these patterns, when it comes to at least anti-Semitism, are much more ingrained in our society. And then if it gets to that structural level, which I think we've had incredible improvements in our country, like since the civil rights movement and on. I mean, Jews used to not be allowed to have certain professions. They, there was quota systems on immigration. They couldn't be allowed in certain clubs. I mean, there's actually a lot of allyship between the black community and the Jewish community in you know, the 60s, before, you know, kind of for this reason. And of course, I think there's still a lot more issues that we need to be working on with the black community and that the Jewish community has more or less achieved. But that does speak to the to kind of the danger of it becoming more more structural. But again, that's not my area of expertise. So I, I do want to say that I only would look at it. I only can look at it through the lens I know, which is the lens of anti-Semitism. I lived for a number of years in Germany, in Munich, Germany in particular, and visited a number of those uh, work or death camps that, mm. that the listener may have some awareness of. And this month in the center, we're focused on the art of listening and what, what dawns on me now and then and stays with me, is that when you're standing in that place where people have been murdered and where structures are responsible for their murder, you are enshrouded in a kind of silence which speaks for itself. And I think in my own humble estimation that that silence that speaks for itself is it's ghastly because what it means is fundamentally the absence of all of those voices and of the new voices or births that would have arrived over the generations of the opportunity to have a word of kindness or of forgiveness or of community around meal and with friends and colleagues. All of that is lost in the ultimate analysis. That Silence is a way in which the future just doesn't unfold because institutions have stood in the way of a people's natural right to exist. I wonder... With, you mentioned Christchurch. I spoke with a man who, Dr. Ahmed, who was from New Zealand. A listener may remember 58 people in that mm-hmm. mosque were murdered. And his mm-hmm. wife was also murdered. And he spoke about silence. He spoke about also the need to be resilient, to have fortitude as communities, to understand the power of your collective well-being. In the face of everything we've talked about, when we talk about anti-Semitism, And in the face of vilification itself that is corrosive across societies and across communities, what is our first, do you think, or maybe our final even, capacity for showing resistance toward hate? It's going to be speaking out for for the other. I really firmly believe that. I think we're, our message is actually stronger when we're not speaking out for the group that we're in. I'll say this actually as someone who's not Jewish. So my my I work my whole career has been in fighting anti-Semitism. I'm I'm not Jewish. I'm a practicing Christian. I come at this from understanding Christian anti-Judaism and knowing what my own you know religious genealogy played in in this fight. But I have seen it on like on the ground in government 
in different levels of civil society where when there are Christians speaking out against anti-Semitism, when there are Muslims speaking out against anti-Semitism or Jews speaking out against Islamophobia or Jews speaking out against anti-Black racism, it's unexpected almost to have that other person speaking out for someone else. And and then it's like, well, why are you doing that? I mean, I think that was one of the reasons why the organization I work for now, um, American Jewish Committee, we were really working with our Asian partners on speaking out against all the Asian hate that just has surged in this past year. And the FBI um, hate crimes just confirmed this. I think it was a 70, I mean, it was a in the tens percent increase just in the last year alone that the Asian American community experienced. And so that's definitely the, like the first and main piece, I would say. There's a a quote that I bring up sometimes from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who passed away, unfortunately, this past year, definitely prematurely. He was only in his early 70s. And he was the former chief rabbi of the UK. But he said that to Jews, but he said, Jews cannot fight anti-Semitism alone. But this is what I think is ubiquitous. This is what is universal. Okay. The victim cannot cure the crime. The hated cannot cure the hate. So that's where it's like, it's not up to the victim or the hated to be the one responsible, you know, for the hatred or the intolerance that others have. It's up to us <laughs> um, to, to speak out against it. And I, I would say that that's really important, something that we can't lose sight of today. Holly, you mentioned resiliency. Could you say more about that in terms of why it's so important for us today? Absolutely. I, I think when we talk about fighting hate or combating anti-Semitism, We use this language almost of a a battle, like what does it mean to combat? What does it mean to fight? You know, we have this kind of like, you know, we are warriors fighting hate and and there's room for those, that kind of language. There really is. However, I think when we think of that, those words, we have to remember a couple of things. And one of them is that in a real life, soldiers in a battle are going to get tired. You know, wars can range for a long time, but can they go on for eternity? Mm -hmm. And so I think one thing we have to do is almost reframe the way we think about combating hate and fighting, you know, anti-Semitism and fighting Islamophobia. Well, that's at the forefront, on the back end, on on the day-to-day end, what we really need to do is is build resilience. And I think, you know, just as, you know, soldiers get tired, they get burned out. If we think about it in terms of resilience, it means that the community, the community that's affected by that hate is actually anticipating and adapting swiftly and purposefully after incidents occur so that the community not only survives, but it can thrive. Something can hit it, it can respond, but it can move on and, and still live. It's not to diminish what they experience, but they are still thriving and they're able to be successful. And it speaks to that resiliency, which is so important, which needs to be said in terms of thinking of fighting hate as a continuous battle. And I think when we look at, for instance, Jewish community resilience, what that does is it sends a message to the anti-Semites. You don't affect me. You have no more power because you belittled me or I'm affected by you. I'm afraid of you. Like I think you know, there's a certain amount, amount of joy when anti-Semites realize that they are hurting the Jewish community, that when the Jewish community feels afraid and when you have that resiliency built up and strengthened and you have the allies around you know, that community, that actually is going to be much stronger <laughs> than the, the battle itself. Yeah. Those at the helm of structures, those in positions of privilege, to your point, and of power and proximity to power have a moral responsibility, don't they? to respond to hate and how hate gets activated in society. I really like and deeply appreciate how you've noted that the victim, who is not the author of that hate, 
doesn't bear responsibility for untangling it, although can be invited to be a part of the process. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us for this important conversation, Holly. We really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.